you can just imagine how powerful that feels to to use an instrument like this on someone. Can you? Can you imagine that? Like, you know, this person wants it. I can't, no. No. Hello, you're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky, and joining me today is visiting professor in philosophy, Pitzer College, Ellie Anderson. Hi. She also teaches philosophy of love. I should add that. <laughs> okay, we're doing good. Okay, so actually in your philosophy of love classes, do you cover BDSM? A little bit. A little bit? In like one session, we do Foucault. Oh, okay. Which I have a question about for today if we get to it. Okay, no, that's, that's uh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'm not familiar. I'm not like... Good stuff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we are at the Chi Temple in the Arts District of downtown LA. We are in a proper dungeon. Yeah. First impressions? It's very romantic. <laughs> the lights are low. There's lots of dark red. Lots of toys about. St. Andrew's Cross. Spanking yes. bench. I think we're sitting on a spanking bench. <laughs> no, are we sitting on a spanking bench? And underneath it are body bags, latex, <laughs> yes. leather. Okay, this is going to be good. And our guest today is Damiana Chi. She is a professional dominatrix, a BDSM sexologist. She has a PhD in psychology, and she is a femdom educator. Welcome, Damiana Chi. Thank you for having me on here. <laughs> Thanks for doing this again. So this is our second time yes. chatting. We did a podcast together before. Let's dive into it. What does it mean to be a femdom educator? So femdom is short for female domination. Okay. And so I teach that end of BDSM that has to do with females being the dominant and men being the submissive. My class, which is called the Dominatrix Archetype, I teach women how to dominate men. So. When women come to you for this class, is there already a natural, what do I want to say, like be a dom? Or yes. No, is it already there and they just don't know how to tap into it? Yes. It, it seems like most of the time um, the women, you know, they already have a sense of who they are as a dominant or, or they feel like I just need help bringing it out. You know, it's there. It's it's. It might be dormant. It might be starting to blossom. And they just want guidance and how to develop it. Right. Do you Can wanna... you tell us a little bit about what the archetype means? That term comes from mm-hmm. Carl Jung, the psychologist, and you have trained mm-hmm. in Jungian psychology. Yes. So the term archetype stands for a universal idea. Um, so it's, it's an idea that, you know, if we say something... If we say mother, we all know what mother means. If we say, let's see, it's another archetype. Home, you know, we all know what that means. So the dominatrix archetype, I use that, coin that term, to mean that in all of us, almost all of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have, we can access the dominatrix archetype. Just like we can access the nurturer you know, mm-hmm. let's say that, you know, you want to access a different part of yourself as a female. I uh, want to access being a compassionate friend or something. So the dominatrix archetype is something that I believe that we can, we all have access to and we can bring out. And I s- develop a system that helps women learn how to dominate by breaking down the dominatrix archetype into four separate archetypes, which are the authoritarian archetype, the seductress archetype, the mother archetype, and the queen archetype. So these are all different styles of domination. And we all might gravitate towards one or maybe two of these styles uh, as a dominant, as a dominant female. But the goal is to really develop all of them uh, because then you'll be a well-rounded dominatrix. You know, like if you're if you're so authoritarian that you don't have any mother in you, then you know, your submissive might be too afraid and can't let go, doesn't feel safe to surrender himself with you. And if maybe you're missing the seductress archetype, then it won't feel sexy, you know, and a man wants to be with a woman who has that energy, you know, usually. (laughs) So the archetypes, these four archetypes are, I see them as the different ways that a man is looking to connect to the female. And I use the the term of uh, the divine feminine. They and it's it's unconscious to the men. They are coming to a dominatrix consciously because they want to maybe play out a fantasy. They think it's 
they would, it would be fun to be with a sexy woman that's telling them what to do or something like that. So that's on the conscious level. But on the unconscious level, they are looking for a connection with the divine feminine. For example, like uh, maybe the last time they were told what to do by a female was, it could have been in childhood by their mother or by their elementary school teacher. And that felt very, you know, at those times, it's a very carefree time in their life, right? They don't have to think about a thing. Their mother tells them what to do. And so it's, it's very comforting to be with um, that part. And then, you know, men have a need to, to feel connected to a woman's sexuality, too. I mean, that's kind of obvious there. And so there's a need there. Sometimes when that's missing in their life, they want to try to find it. They want to find that connection somewhere, right? Yeah. And then the uh, another archetype is the queen archetype. The queen is the spiritual part of it. So each of these archetypes connect to different ways of connecting. So that the queen is the spiritual connection. The mother is the emotional connection. The uh, seductress is the erotic connection. And the authoritarian is, you know, I call it the physical connection because there's not, maybe there's not another <laughs> level. But anyway, back to the queen. The queen is the spiritual connection because men have a need, and it's probably an unconscious need, a need to worship a female. Wow. Let's There's, teach that some more. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, men of any age or any position you know, in their life, and it, it, it could be someone who's an executive who's you know, on the top of the executive chain <laughs> they can't get any higher but they still have a need to worship the female on some level it's something i found that from the last time we talked i had a lot of questions from people who were listening and one of the th reoccurring themes that i realized was that there was a a very that was revealed was that there is a very narrow concept of sexuality and what is allowed or what people do and so this seems to be outside of what everybody is taught that they can and cannot do. But what you are talking about is enhancing our concept of sexuality and desire in a way that it filters into needs for everyday life. Mm -hmm. That if we just think about sex in terms of just, I don't know, just like one, one round in one round in the bedroom and then that's it so it has nothing else to do with the rest of our life that that's problematic mm -hmm. and what you're offering is a way to discuss that how we are in intimacy is a reflection of a much bigger need about how to be in the world yeah that's what i think is so interesting mm -hmm. yeah and what's kind of a shame is that you know when men have a need to say worship a woman and then and he can't really find a woman that feels comfortable with that because, you know, a lot of times a woman wants to um, be on the submissive side of it or, or whatever. So it's not comfortable for her to do that for him. Then, and he's missing that. He somehow wants to seek that out. Right? Yeah, so it seems like there should be this honesty about what somebody needs and what somebody wants. Mm -hmm. And maybe we just push that away because we're afraid to talk about sexuality at all. As though, right. As though that were an important part of compatibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... It's common that people don't know how to talk about these things openly. Maybe, maybe in a in a couple, it it would be hard to say. You know, I I really would like to worship you like a goddess. You know, like it might be hard for <laughs> for a man to say that to a woman. Uh, it might be hard for her to hear that. It might you know it might weird her out, or, or it might <laughs> you know. And so, but but coming to a dominatrix is easy because she understands. Yeah. You know? That's and, why the, the service is, yeah. is there and useful. <laughs> and in your descriptions, it sounds like, obviously, you are a woman and you teach femdoms. And it sounds like, on the other hand, the clients you are servicing are men based on Mostly. your description. Mostly, okay. yeah. I do have female clients. Mm. The class I teach is female domination. But I also dominate women, which I very much enjoy. So, And do you find, when it comes to these men that you're dominating, would they identify as heterosexual? I know yes. also kink is its own sexuality, and so is there both or maybe something different mm -hmm. going on? Yeah. So I would say most of them consider themselves heterosexual. Okay. I've seen some gay men, which is, you know, it's fun. <laughs> but uh, most of them are heterosexual, and a lot of them uh, are, are self-identified kink like this is their their sexuality. They are kinky. That they 
get turned on by the uh, power exchange element of it. We should explain that because I think when people think of sexual orientation, they might think gay or bisexual or... Pansexual. Pansexual, yeah. And so this is an interesting idea of introducing kink as an orientation. Mm-hmm. That that is something that yeah. somebody wants. It's a real orientation because some people get turned on by the, the power exchange element or, you know, the domination and sometimes they can't get turned on any other way if they if they're that much on that end of the spectrum. Right. Sometimes they're they can go both ways. You know, they can do vanilla sex or they can do kiki sex and it's all good. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, like they can't get an erection if it, there's no kinky thing in it, if their fetish isn't there or something like that. And from what I understand, not all kinks are the same. Some people prefer right. very specific things. Mm-hmm. So bondage or what are different preferences where somebody says, okay, kink is my orientation, but it's this specific yeah. type. Mm-hmm. What would be some types? Oh, okay. So um, let's see. You know, it's very common to come into a, a, to see a dominatrix and say, you know, I want you to train me as a slave I want you to treat me as a slave I want to so that's kind of like the umbrella fantasy and then within that fantasy they they're open to maybe being uh, to having some impact play which involves vlogging or paddling um, caning and things that involve impact and then um, bondage you know would be another thing they want to be tied up and helpless because those things just kind of enhance the power dynamic right you know and how long does it take to tie somebody up or to put them in bondage because from what i understand that's part of the that's part Mm -hmm. of the erotic the the whole process is the erotic thing well so uh, so there's simple bondage and then there's intricate bondage and so if somebody doesn't have a big kink for that just like slap some shackles (laughs) some, (laughs) some wrist cuffs on them and ankle cuffs and that's it but if somebody is really into you know like the shibari you know, Japanese style rope bondage is very involved, mm-hmm. then I don't do that. Um, you have to go to a specialist. I have friends who are special, you know, that's their specialty is to tie someone up. And so my, my good friend who does the shibari, she's, you know, she said sessions can last, you know, two, four, six hours, wow. depending on what kind of experience they want. And it's not uncommon to do a four hour because she, you know, she can, she can do some suspension in there and tie him put them in a different position people get are in subspace for hours from doing that <laughs> yeah i would love to hear more about subspace this particular mode of consciousness that people go into when they're mm-hmm. submissive yeah so a quite common way to put someone in subspace is um, using impact play like for example today i did a spanking and then i started using my leather straps and then i ended with my canes so when i started my spanking the person's not in subspace like they're just they're just kind of like their mind still might be in the outside world they might just kind of like still be thinking too much their energy's up in their head or something like that but then once i start doing the rhythmic spanking and the rhythmic part of it too gets is it helps put someone in an altered state. It's kind of like, think of drum circles. So I started doing the rhythmic spanking. And then when the endorphins start coming in, then it helps them be able to take more pain because there's some feel-good chemicals happening there. So they can take more pain, and that's the, that's the point where subs, they start dropping into subspace. So that's one way. But you, could, you don't need impact play to get, to, to get someone into subspace. You can just do it verbally. If I talk someone into subspace, it's like me telling them how I want them to, you know, what position I want them to be, how I want them to speak, what words I allow and not allow. And suddenly they realize that this is their place, mm-hmm. you know, as my sub. And then when I start taking away bit by bit, uh, one type of control, another type of control, when they start realizing they don't have control, they're in subspace. Like they just, like, they are in that altered state. It takes a bit of time. It's not immediate, but, uh, but you can definitely verbally mentally you know psychologically get somebody there is there a common fantasy what is i'm i'm wondering if somebody they feel like it's been weighing on them they have a fantasy and then they're able to disclose it and they find out that oh i'm not the only one there's almost this relief that they're Mm -hmm. allowed to explore this part of them but what are some common fantasies yeah the most common one is is being a slave okay to a mistress 
And so that might be from maybe seeing some images on the internet and they connect to that. You know, okay. go, wow, I want to try being that position because that excites me to see that. So I want to try it. You know, actually be in yeah. that position. But like some role plays, you know, uh, would be maybe teacher student or. Oh, um, <laughs> That's our last thing we want to think about. <laughs> yeah, you might not want to think about it, but you two are hot women, so I assure you that's happening in your classrooms. <laughs> that's happening. Okay, great. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know. Um, a teacher-student one would be like uh, someone comes in and teacher asked him that asked to see him after school. He's like, "Oh no, what did I do?" Well, I know that you cheated on that test, you know, or something like that, and I'm gonna have to fail you. Oh no! <laughs> Please, I can't. I can't get an F on this class. Well, then you're gonna have to go through this punishment. Okay. You know, or something like that, and it's mm-hmm. just. Because it's it's natural for, um, as a teacher, you're in a position of power. You're seen as this person who you're, you know, you're on a higher level there than them, right? So it's just natural for them to fantasize about having you control them more on an erotic level (laughs) and just all that. So Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it seems especially nowadays when we are so responsible for so many areas of our lives and there's this expectation that we be the same person on social media as we are with our family, as we are with our friends. And there's this increased emphasis on being one continuous self, Mm -hmm. that there may be more of a desire to abdicate that responsibility and give it over to somebody else. Does that resonate at all with your experience? Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. So I have a little bit of a problem with the term femdom because it's not just men that have a lot of responsibilities, women too. But I put that out there because it's just easier to say, you know, to say, you know, this is right now. Anyway, my my class is femdom. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I spoke about the divine feminine earlier, which is that's the energy of being passive and calm and receptive and accepting and you know, so that's that energy. And we nowadays, especially in LA, it's. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of space for that in our lives, right? It's like we can kind of carve that out for ourselves, but we're in the doing mode a lot, less in the being mode. And so it is a relief to come in and just be told what to do. It's such a, it's such a mental release that the, from what I hear, the effects of relaxation that happen after a session last for days. Because it's not just your body that's being relaxed. You know, even if you're getting a massage, your mind can spin. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you're in here and you're being control, even your mind is being controlled. Like, there's no way you can think about anything when you're being dominated. So when you have that vacation from your mind, it is a total relaxation, and it's just like so. Yeah, people get a lot of benefit from it. A lot of health benefits. Yeah, I would imagine because you're not just talking. I mean, I think that we talk about sexuality in terms of just a physical pleasure. And then there's lots of offs and ons or what's allowed and what isn't allowed. And that this is here. I mean, there's costumes, there's a setting, there's a whole way of interacting. That that seems to be what is the soothing part. That it's not just strictly about physical pleasure at all. It doesn't seem to be, I don't know. Because I know when I told my students, okay, I'm going to come and talk with a professional dominatrix. You know, there's lots of snickering, and um, which is fine, you guys. (laughs) Because the mind immediately goes to physical Mm -hmm. physical pleasures, but it's not just that. Yeah, it's not just that. That's just what they know. And it's not their fault because that's what's put in front of their face, you know, in movies and everywhere in media. That's what they know. (laughs) So what does it mean to be a slave? (laughs) So a slave it, it gives up total control over to the dominant. And, you know, it's not a... I use the term slave. I like the term slave. I call my sub slave in a session, but he's not really my slave. I do have actual slaves, personal slaves. Okay. And that's... If you want to talk about that later, <laughs> if I could talk about that. But, um, like, the role of a slave in a session is... Or a sub. You know, they can be called a sub is someone that just gives over total and complete control to the dominant on every level. She can do what she pleases to him as far as, you know, according to what his limits are. There's going to be limits 
most of the time. Right. There's consent. There's yes. Always, yes. Yeah. We do the consent. We do the um, the pre-negotiation before we start the session. You know, keeping in mind those limits, we can. She can do these things to him physically. She can tell him that it's it's not okay to say you know, to speak. You know, and so he's just at her mercy. And well, you had said when you first gave us a tour of somebody with a collar and then... Yes. You know, so so I'm just thinking of the physical position, the physical posturing that somebody's put into in order to get into the mindset mm-hmm. of that. So somebody is collared and then... Okay. Yeah. So if somebody's collared and put on a leash, naturally I'm going to want them to be on their hands and knees and crawling, right? Okay. Because that's, that's, and for them to be put down on that lower level, it just gets their mind there. They're like okay, I'm, I'm a slave. I mean, that just, you know, the, the act of being, the position of being below the dominant, you know, that automatically puts them in that mindset of being submissive. Right. You know, um, and being led around by a leash too. You know, that doesn't happen, right? So when you're led around and pulled this and that way, it's like that's, that they're definitely feeling that power. Mm-hmm. They know they don't have control there. I'd love to ask you a little more about consent following that because there's a lot of debate right now in feminist communities about whether consent is enough and what consent looks like. And so a lot of feminists will say we need enthusiastic consent for sexual acts. And then other feminists will say maybe even that's not enough because sometimes people are actually just consenting to their own alienation. As somebody so trained in psychology, I know you think a lot about the balance. I've heard you talk about that elsewhere, about coming from a sort of balanced psychological place. Mm-hmm. Is it is there any way that you're able to discern whether somebody is psychologically balanced in that negotiation of consent before the session? Mm-hmm. Are you sometimes worried and you know about that with your clients? Yeah. So, you know, before I even meet someone there's an application process that I have them go through in an email and that's where I'll I I will already start to you know see who this person is and so I had an email recently where this person just kept asking over and over about some something and I said well that's it's going to be covered in our phone interview and he just kept asking and it's like okay this person isn't you know psychologically he's not going to be able to handle a BDSM session because here he is he's not getting that he has to go through this process of answer my questions and then step by step and then you know and then we get there so am i explaining this right Mm -hmm. so i i can tell from that point if somebody's kind of like fit for this play or not they have to be psychologically balanced they can't have any kind of issues going on there that i don't want to be responsible for you know i don't want to hurt someone emotionally or psychologically you know can't do it so so I'm very selective on who I choose to play with because I'm protecting people. If, if they're not ready for this type of play, I'm not going to, to do that, you know. Are there ever times in the midst of a session where you will back away from something a client has consented to before the session because you get the sense that there might be some need for yeah, protection there? maybe. Like, for example, if, they're, if I'm doing some impact play and they had asked for that, mm-hmm. And it's triggering them on an emotional level and maybe they're starting to cry or something like that. I can tell if the cry is a positive release or it's triggering something that's traumatic, you know. So I can tell at this level because I'm I'm experienced enough to know. But yeah, if somebody's being triggered and it's not a good thing, then I'll stop. I'm not going to keep going. So it know? sounds like there's been a lot of training and... A complex version of empathy almost in yeah. doing this. Mm-hmm. And I have been trained in empathy because of my psychological training. So I feel like, you know, if it was up to me and I was in charge of a board <laughs> that certifies dominatrixes, <laughs> d- dominatrices, I would um, have them all study psychology and have them all st- have empathy training. And because there's a lot of doms out there who, uh, I mean, there's no any kind of certification process. So anybody can say, hey, I'm a dominatrix and doing unsafe things out there. And maybe put themselves in peril too. Maybe. I would say the consent issue is interesting. I mean, maybe because we're both on university campuses also that I know now it is standard. I have to fill out a form or do some sort of an online tutorial 
and all of the students have to do an online tutorial about sexual harassment and consent is now a very big, big part of it. Mm -hmm. And some naysayers seem like, oh, can't you just tell by body language or I don't know, but consent seems to be totally ambiguous. And what's interesting about this is that it is not ambiguous at no, all. It's very, very clear. <laughs> this could be something yeah. that could translate everywhere, that it is mm -hmm. not problematic to get consent before you touch anyone or move in or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So people act like that's awkward or a problem. Or like, why do you have to pressure people to do this? And actually you have a whole community yeah. <laughs> that works it's on It's a that. shame that it's awkward, isn't it? Like, it should just, we should just talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Very clearly and frankly and have it not be like weird. Yeah. You don't it have just, to be robotic about it either. Yeah. I mean, there can be, there can be, can be, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I think people want to have been living off the idea of just trying to read social cues and we find out that that is just not enough. Um, partly, partly because women have been trained to be sociologically have been trained to respond to situations, be, be the pleaser, mm -hmm. not, not disrupt anything. And so right. have found themselves in uncomfortable situations where they're having harder time uh, reading how they're supposed to be. And that maybe men are being trained to be more assertive and not understanding where that line mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the genders you're using are really illuminating there because it's, to my mind, mostly only within heterosexual, cisgender, and vanilla situations yeah. that that kind of presumed consent happens. Yeah. Because a lot of queer communities will say consent is always explicit and ongoing for us because right. there isn't an established set of norms of kissing to xyz to intercourse yeah, right right well have you ever seen the musical seven brides for seven brothers of course <laughs> so i watched that as a kid and then as an adult i'm looking at it and like this is horrifying all of these guys kidnap these women to make them their brides Do you know this have you seen it? Oh. i haven't seen it but i've heard <laughs> it's a, it yeah. is considered a you know it's it's a classic right? it's basically it's a classic. about marital rape yeah <laughs> Or, I mean, if you go back and just... So I'm thinking, okay, I have been raised on these things, um, been watching these things, and looking back, I'm realizing, oh, okay, I can see why maybe there's being a, there's a cultural shift at this time where we're looking at that and saying, okay, that's not, that's not okay. But on the other hand, it was probably also tapping into this idea of submissive and dominant that, mm -hmm. is, that was there, but there, w without the consent, right? Like, without right. the clear lines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or Greece. <laughs> we just talked Greece? about Greece in my love and friendship class yesterday because <laughs> we were talking about the Madonna whore complex okay. and I was asking for examples and one student said Sandy at the beginning of Greece versus Sandy at the end of right. Greece. So yeah. talk about archetypes. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know with, um, you know, some pushback in feminist philosophy all the way back to, I think, her Mary Wollstonecraft from the 1700s was that if you introduce friendship into a relationship, which is kind of implying a different dynamic uh, than, than just, um, just the old standard of of a woman just not having any brains or anything like that, just going with the flow and she's just meant for marriage, that one of the pushbacks is that you will ruin relationships, right? That part of the intense, you know, relationship or the sexuality is that kind of tension. And if you introduce consent, you're going to destroy romance mm. and things like that. Or mystery or something. Right, mm. right. That tension is there, but I don't know. So I'm feminists have been having to deal oh. with that kind of a pushback. And so... Then what's interesting is about this, when it comes to BDSM, it seems to be pushed into the shadows as if this is something that is deviant. But then when you look at what it's accomplished, it's just a lot of sexuality, a lot of pleasure, a lot of psychological benefits, and it includes the consent, yeah. which means that if you include consent, you are not disrupting a sexual enjoyment or pleasure. That was my point. <laughs> it took me a long time to get there. Yeah, so consent in that case doesn't kill the erotic no. drive. Exactly. No. That's, I think that was one of the arguments that people, like all the way back from Wollstonecraft to today, have been concerned that the consent will kill the erotic drive. That's perfect. Uh -huh. But this is actually proof that no, it's there. It's very clear. <laughs> that brings me to this. What is a common misconception? Is there something that irritates you or annoys you and you think, okay, this is just blatantly untrue about BDSM. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the, the typical stereotype of um, what a dominatrix is, is that, uh, that you know, it's, it's played out in the movies. Um, she's got to be a mean, cruel bitch who is self-serving and is just beating on this person like he's an object. You know, because they, they don't go into what it really is. They just, they, they just use the, the shock value of it just to put it in movies to make it entertaining. Right. Um, somehow they're, they're, I don't know, they're maybe people don't have enough patience for it. But I hope to see a change in the media. I, I, I think that there's a trend going that way where there's going to be more openness and interest in learning about what BDSM really is because it's very it's fascinating. It's so deep on so many levels, you know? And I I get so much fulfillment out of this on so many levels. You know, you're talking about taking that mystery out. There's so many other benefits when we take out that mystery. When that vulnerability and that authenticity is there with a person, we become so much closer, so much quicker. All the bull- bullshit's out. Like that you know we don't have to weed through that, you know? Mm-hmm. So we get right there. We my myself and the person are just like we're we're closer immediately and you just feel like and that's why that we can do sessions that's why we can do an intimate session where uh, where someone can completely open up in a very short amount of period of time because uh all of those the layers are dropped off you know that that you that normally in social steps that you go through you know you don't have to go through them so I see people, I see people for the beautiful people that they are. You know, I can see someone who is, let's say he's, um, <laughs> let's say he's a professor uh-huh. <laughs> at a university or something, and he's coming to me to be my slave. I'll see this beautiful man who, like, I can see a younger side of him. You know, I can see, like, this vulnerable, because everyone regresses when they submit to, like, a younger because they're made to be vulnerable. And so they'll show me everything who they are in in sessions, like they are showing me that they worship me, you know, and that's very beautiful mm-hmm. because that's very real and I love and appreciate that so much. What's another example? I'm using the same example of this imaginary person. I just get to see sides of people that most people don't get to see. And I just feel that that's a very, that's like, I feel honored. And I feel that's, that's, that's a very precious uh, gift that I'm giving, given every day. Right. I, I'm also imagining that if we do look at kink as an orientation, if that is suppressed, that there seems to be a cost to that. If somebody goes through their life, not un- having, having this desire and never having the, the outlet to express it, that also seems like it would be problematic mm-hmm. um, and you know, very hurtful to somebody to enjoy their life. I think it could be because that's who they are. And right. if they're not able to express who they are, it's a shame, you know? They, um, then there's somebody else with their partners because they can't express fully who they are. You know? yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that kink is not necessarily sexual. I think for some philosophers, there is a distinction between sexuality and eros. Whereas we usually think of the erotic as sexual, Eros for many philosophers encompasses something broader, this drive for intimacy with another that Mm -hmm. you can never unify with. Do you think that you would consider BDSM or kink erotic, even if not necessarily sexual? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely erotic. Because, uh, you know, the doesn't necessarily have to be sexual because it doesn't have to get sexual. Climax doesn't have to happen for it to be exciting and, and sexy and erotic. Uh, there's there's definitely, in most sessions, there's an erotic turn on about this because it's sexy to be dominated by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about uh, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who's a 20th century queer theorist, sort of the father of queer theory before queer theory was a thing. And he was pretty active in the S&M communities in San Francisco when he would come visit California. And he talks about how S&M is about the eroticization of power mm-hmm. rather than being about violence. And eroticization of power seems very similar to what you've been describing. Uh-huh. Would you also agree that it's not about violence? Oh, it's not about violence because uh, because of the consent part of it. Without the consent, it would not be BDSM. It would be... It would be violence or it would be abuse. So violence for you is defined by the absence of consent? Yes. Okay. 
Oh, okay, that's a good distinction. There is a really great article that you tweeted out. So I want to give a shout out to the author, Margaret Anderson. And the article is how BDSM is teaching women to become more assertive. And something that struck me in this article, you're featured in the article. Mm-hmm. Something that struck me in the article was that um, how women say sorry too often. <laughs> I am that person. <laughs> no, I tell all my students not to do that. <laughs> oh, no, I wish I, I, it's one of those things where I'll hear myself say it. And I wish that I hadn't said it, but it's just there. Mm-hmm. I'm just I- I- apologetic. Right. Or, yeah. And I, I don't want my students to do it either because I notice with my female students, they're more apologetic, let's say, when they hand in a term paper, uh, you know, almost like it's not my best thing. There's, there's mm-hmm. all this. And then I see that in myself as well. So that really struck a chord with me, this idea of women saying sorry too often. But uh, that BDSM training, and this is what interests me, is that this erotic sense of how it ripples through someone's life that it helps women develop negotiating skills and boundaries Mm. and um, you were quoted in there talking about just in a sense something like body language how important that is for Mm -hmm. women to get a sense of themselves so from I guess from the women that you teach and what kind of things have you seen in women's lives from learning BDSM that doesn't actually have to do with Mm -hmm. their partners, but other avenues of their life? Oh, right. So let's go back to the saying sorry too much. (laughs) And then I'll talk about the body language. So, you know, we're trained socially to to be very polite when we're like, let's say we're in public, excuse me, sorry, you know, and and it is a submissive standpoint. It's a position, right? Um, So in my course, we in my workshop, we, we practice, we do this purposeful practice on how to not be polite. So we were going to drop all the I'm sorry's, excuse me's, and I tell them, you know, instead of saying, um, excuse me, will you please get me that chair over there? Then instead of that, just say, bring me that chair. That's it. Oh, I need this training. <laughs> and um, and also we we do end our sentences a lot with with the pol- polite you know training. <laughs> we end our sentences a lot with this pitch uh, up pitch, right? It sounds almost like a question mark at the end. You know, like you bring me that chair, you Especially know, like that, if you're right? From Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I I um, I ask the women to practice speaking in a down pitch. Bring me that chair. End it with a period. And just that you sound you don't sound impolite. You just sound like you know what you want, you know. So we do do a lot of practicing of that type of speech. And so when you, you know, you, this is something you can practice in your in your life. And you can still say the word please if you want to, like tell a waiter, <laughs> you know, please bring me a glass of water, you know. And that sounds great, right? Instead of, excuse me, um, will you please, <laughs> please get some water? Yeah. And it just sounds, it, it could even make them think that you don't know what you want you know it, it makes the other person feel good when they when you sound like you know what you want it's much more clear and so anyway that's the speech part of it and then in the body language part we want to always have good posture posture is 80 percent of attractiveness and <laughs> yeah i'm straightening up as we speak yes we all are right <laughs> shoulders back. so shoulders back and just look you look more dominant when you when you have good posture and so, especially when I teach like the queen archetype, hold yourself, you know, hold your head up high, shoulders back and everything. And so you look more dominant this way. You also look more dominant when you kind of take up space. Right. You know, like, like I'm, I'm doing this where my legs all the way out there and I'm, you know, because I can, because I, <laughs> I wish you all could I see the way this. that we're changing our shapes right now. <laughs> so I own this, this space around me. But if you kind of curl up your body, you know, like in this little little curled up thing, this this looks very submissive, right? If you hunch over and you kind of like cross your arms in front of your body, you will feel more submissive and you will be perceived as submissive. So that's something we can practice too, you know, just kind of like you can open up, you know, don't protect your chakras, you know, you know like your solar, solar plex. This, this looks like you're protecting yourself because you need to for some reason because there's something to protect against. But you know, if you kind of open up, you don't. You're not afraid of anything. So, and men, I think, are trained. Men take up more space. So, I think that that's yeah. Now, as as you're saying this, I'm thinking maybe I need to get out because I'm thinking 
the way in which you're describing taking up space and not taking up space, that women tend to close off their bodies, whereas men will open up their bodies. You know, this can be a problem on a subway when they just like spread their legs. (laughs) (laughs) They take up space. And that's not a problem. And I have been relating it to male and female. And you're relating it to dominant and submissive, mm-hmm. that maybe we need to take the male and female out of the equation, that it's not male or female, it is yeah. dominant and submissive. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that, you know, it's it might be dangerous to, you know, always try to protect yourself consciously or unconsciously, because unconsciously, predators might pick up on those cues and go, well, she's somebody that, you know, she's somebody I can attack because she's scared. This is, there's an FBI agent who wrote a book called Fear. I never forgot it. And one of the things that he was talking about was when women are attacked, a lot of times their instincts have cut in, that are jumped in, or been on alert. Something is wrong and they ignore it Mm -hmm. to be polite. Uh Uh-huh. That they, that has been an issue. So he's Mm -hmm. kind of on a mission to get women to listen that when something is off Mm -hmm. to react to it. And that always struck a chord with me because I'm thinking about how many times have I been in an awkward situation. Oh, yeah. Or even at a party talking to somebody I don't want to talk to. And then I feel stuck. Oh, yeah. Because I don't know how to say I no longer want to talk to right. you. Right. <laughs> that, that's, that's, your, that's your sixth sense. That's your intuition. Yes. It's, it's like, it's speaking to you. You know, you're, you know when you're not supposed to be speaking to someone or, because you feel it, you feel icky. Yeah. It's like, and it's interesting too, because what you're saying makes me think that there are ways to sort of train and retrain the that sixth sense. Mm-hmm. Because in the settings that you're accustomed to, a lot of times people are becoming comfortable with things that they might not be comfortable with in other settings. And so this dominant submissive dichotomy, even though it doesn't necessarily map on to men and women permanently, right? There's still some sort of training that we get from a very young age and women in particular get this training in being submissive. And it seems like through something like a femdom training, one can unlearn that a yes. bit. Yes, uh-huh. right. Um, and I do get women who take my course who they don't necessarily want to uh, be, a, be a dominatrix in their personal or professional life. You know, they just want to do it for personal development. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's this really canonical essay in feminist philosophy called Throwing Like a Girl by Iris Marion Young. And she talks there about how young girls don't throw as well as young boys do and that that's not for any biological reason, but it's because women and girls at that age are taught to close up mm-hmm. and have an inhibited bodily comportment. And I'm thinking about that a little bit in relation to all of the toys that you use as a dominatrix, because it seems to me that a training in being a dominatrix would not only help open you up and use your body more fully, but it would also help you to extend it with the uses Mm -hmm. of canes and whips and flogs. That feels Mm -hmm. almost more like an extension of Uh your body that you're using. Yes, yes. I do talk about these implements as extensions of, of me. I do, so that's good. Ah. (laughs) Same wavelength. Yeah. Do you have a favorite extension of you? (laughs) I have so many favorites. (laughs) I love the floggers. I I love my whips. I I love um, all my straps, my canes. They're all... My right arm is so much stronger than my left (laughs) because, because I love to use my implements. And it feels very powerful. I mean... Um, you can just imagine how powerful that feels to to use an instrument like this on someone. Can you? Can you imagine that? Like you know, this person wants it. I can't. No. No. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> <I can't. laughs> <I can't. laughs> my students learn that. I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> no. You see, for me, it has to be a person that wants it. It can't be. I can't flog a curtain uh, it, because there's no energy coming back. Right. When I. I'm flogging a person, I'm feeling that energy and it feeds me and it makes me, feeds my dominance and then my dominance feeds their submissiveness and then it's just like, that's what the energy exchange is. It just keeps going back and forth, that that flow, you know. And what's so um, beautiful and magical about a scene like, like a flogging is that I don't have to speak at all, you know, because I'm, because we're communicating on an energetic level. That is so fascinating because that really illustrates what you've been 
talking about in terms of the power exchange that's integral to BDSM. And certainly that would also be what's erotic about it, right? Mm -hmm. Is that there is this exchange going on. So even with a slave or a submissive, it's not as if that slave or submissive is just a pure object. No. Their subjectivity is still shining through. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. They are who they are still, but they're they're put in this role. They it's it's very freeing to be put in that role because they get to be in this role that they don't get to be in the outside world. You know, like you say, you came from an acting background. Isn't it liberating sometimes to, yes. to play a role? Because, <laughs> because it's like, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes playing different gender roles, I think, is interesting here as well. And I don't want to conflate playing a gender role with something like actually having a trans identity or anything like that. But I know for me, I played, um, I'm a cisgender woman, but I've played men before in acting contexts and really found that to be tapping into uh-huh. a different side of myself. You mentioned that a lot of your male clients, cisgender male clients, are really turned on by feminization. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. I have several subs, my personal slaves, who are feminine, who, who either, you know, the feminization is, is on a spectrum, too. Okay. There's, there's forced feminization all the way to, you know, like my personal, I have a personal slave who has a whole storage unit filled with <laughs> all kinds of dolly dresses and sissy dresses and things like that. And on the, let's say, beginner level, um, maybe somebody has a fantasy about wanting to be put in panties or something, but they don't want to be responsible for that desire. So they come to a dominatrix and say, you know, I, um, I want you to force me to put them on, you know, because, because it releases that guilt. And so I'll make them, I'll, you know, in, in the, in the role play, I'll make you know, like you're supposed to, I want you to wear panties. I want you to wear panties right now. And they're like, no, no, please don't make me. <laughs> but they, they do it because I told them to, and they got to play that fantasy out, you know, and it's not their fault. You know, that's on like that level of the, of the spectrum of feminization. And then there's, you know, you know, I did a whole like Zoom meeting <laughs> about this with my students. And then there's what we call um, like uh, this, the sissies, where there's a sissy maid, uh, and the sissy maids are made to be put in feminine clothing and clean my dungeon or clean my house and that maybe I'm going off of what you asked me but that's exciting for them because it's something that they they can't do you know they can't they can't act like a girl and clean a house because that's like you know that's not that's not manly or um but it's something that that excites them that's something they always wanted to do so to be able to do that here is very liberating and then there's the the tactile part of the lingerie thing too. Like you know, wearing panties. It's, men don't have that kind of underwear. That you know, satiny, lacy, those the thin you know panties. That's something special for women. It's only something women get to wear. And you know, when they put that on, it's like, oh wow, this is sexy because it makes women feel sexy. It obviously makes men feel sexy when they put it on. This type of material. So all of a sudden, it's yeah, it feels very erotic. It might feel more erotic to them because it's not like a normal thing. For us, it's like, oh, we put this stuff on every day, so. Yeah, or that, that desire to want to do it and haven't been able to do that in front of anybody or have anybody tell mm-hmm. them, okay. Yeah, it's really interesting thinking about that in terms of identity because I think there are some folks on the theoretical side who want to say that your sexual expression in many cases is completely separate from other facets of your identity. So for instance, sissy maid may identify as a heterosexual cisgender man Mm -hmm. outside of the dungeon. That's right. And then in other cases, I've also heard that for uh, female to male men in particular, there's an essay by C. Jacob Hale on this, being a leather dyke daddy or boy can be a way of trying on Mm. a male transgender identity that they then want to bring into their everyday life by transitioning full time. So it seems like there are really different motivations for Mm -hmm. people here. Right. There's different motivations. It is different. Because it's a kink, let's say my sissy maid only wants to be a sissy maid for me, only wants to be a sissy maid because she's being told to do these things, being told to put on that outfit and clean. But it would not be exciting for her to go out in public like that. No desire, 
you know, it's not a turn on, nothing. But in our safe little container here, she can be free to, to play that part of herself out, you know, to be that part of herself. Yeah. I think we need to wrap it up. Okay, okay. sorry, okay, I had so no. many questions. <laughs> Don't say sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. Well, um, Damiana, how can people get in touch with you? You're, I have a website. website. I have three websites. My domination website is damianachi.com. D-A-M-I-A-N-A-C-H-I.com. And then I have my, my coaching website. My, it's called BDSM Sexologist. So uh, on that website, I offer coaching, counseling, and that type of service. And then I have my three-day intensive workshop for femdom training, which is, uh, for the website for that is thedominatrixarchetype.com. And that's too long to spell out, but <laughs> you can look up those words. Yeah. I can figure it out. My next three-day workshop is November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and there's still openings. Okay. And there's a six spot maximum so i only accept six spots six women total so there's i think it's about four sold right now all right yeah so (laughs) (laughs) and let's see if anybody has any questions about this episode you can tweet me at g dolsky or add in the details pod i do have a twitter account instagram and facebook yes and it's my handle is Damiana Chi PhD. Right. So it's like, you know, it's harder to get a hold of me that way, but it's there. Well, that's how I found that article about how BDSM improves women's oh, lives. Mm-hmm. Can I say that I very much enjoyed this interview? I mean, I don't get to, I've done some interviews before, but I don't get to, to talk on such a, an intellectual level all that much. And so for me, it's been very, very fulfilling and exciting. And um, oh, I mean, good. I can sit here with you both for hours Thank and just you. talk about That's so stuff. sweet. I feel the same so. way. <laughs> well, we if can, I learned we anything. Can come back. So, yeah, so, right? So you get five stars from me. <laughs> okay. If I learned anything from today, it's that you should have your shoulders back and say, give me five stars. <laughs> That's, yes. There we go. <laughs> you you no, got no it. No question. No question. Nope, no, no, period speak. at the end of that. <laughs> Maybe okay. a please if you want, but still, <laughs> still definitive. That works. That does. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, thank so you. much. Bye.